Hello, this is your host, Sunita Bagri. I am the founder of the Every Teacher Matters Project. Welcome to the Every Teacher Matters Network podcast. Each podcast has a core focus around the well-being of our teachers, school leaders and educational staff. The Teach Well Alliance works proudly in partnership with the Every Teacher Matters Network to raise awareness of well-being and mental health for our teachers and school staff. We're so pleased that you're able to join us on today's podcast. Hello. So today I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Victoria Carr, which I'm really excited about. She is also a TEDx speaker. I watched a recent TEDx talk in which I listened to Nora Flanagan, an American teacher. This this, um, TEDx talk is entitled How Schools Should Respond to COVID-19, which made me think about Dr. Victoria Carr, because in her passion for education. She also talks about a number of things that affect education and her commitment and her passion towards our profession. Nora Flanagan explains how the teaching profession became responsible overnight. She refers to the town of Chicago in which herself and other colleagues became responsible for 4,000 pupils to start learning online immediately when the lockdown was announced. She starts by explaining that what seemed impossible became a reality and really fast remote learning was a plausible option. She talks about how teachers made food drives, provided resources in children's homes. They made masks for the community to wear. They also changed their homes into classrooms. She talks about the impact of mental health, how that coagulated and collided and at least everyone cried, if not more than once. I'm really looking forward to this candid conversation with Dr. Victoria Carr today, who I've referred to as also being a TEDx speaker herself. She is the head teacher of Woodlands Primary School in Ellesmere Port in Cheshire, which is an area of high deprivation. She is someone I follow on LinkedIn, and I was absolutely delighted when she accepted my invitation to be on the guest on the Every Teacher Matters Network podcast. I know that this is going to be a candid conversation because of Victoria's authenticity and the way that she shares so openly on social media. She is a leader that is admired and inspired by so many. Dr. Victoria Carr, welcome so much to this candid conversation. It's great to have you here today. Thank you very much. I don't quite know what to say after an introduction like that, but thank you, I guess, is the only response to give. Thanks. <laughs> You're most welcome. It really is a privilege to be speaking with you today. So what I'd really like to do is, because the point of this special series is to really explore what your experience is like managing a school. You know, I speak as a former head teacher myself, just managing it in ordinary circumstances is no easy task but to be doing what you're doing in this pandemic is is you know absolutely to be admired and respected so before we launch into the discussion around the pandemic what I'd really be interested in is you know just I know what type of a leader you are I get a good (laughs) sense of the type of leader you are from following your work but I'd like you to share with the listeners today you know what's your leadership style what do you believe in what are your core values 
Well, um, I, I don't know what kind of a leader I am really in terms of fitting into a pigeonhole. I know there are lots and lots of theories about leadership and about the different kinds of leaders that people can and should be in different situations. But I think um, to keep it simple for me so that I can kind of focus on the job in hand, I always just go back to what you've just said, which are my core values. And I think um, working with integrity is really important to me. And my team will tell you that um, that's one of the things that we talk about quite regularly, um, being ethical. And, you know, I know that there's a, there can be a temptation for people in our world to hold grudges and to be cross and let their emotions take over. And that's not something that I, uh, I do. I don't advocate that at all, um, either in my personal life or my professional life. So we always look at children at the center of absolutely everything that we do. And I think it's really easy then to decision make if you've got children and their well-being and, and their, their, um, their end goal, their outcomes at the heart of everything. And I don't mean by that sort of SATS outcomes. I mean, you know, their lives and how happy they are to go into the world. If you keep that right at the center of everything, suddenly decision-making for me becomes very easy in a way because whereas you might be, your brain might be clouded with um, anxieties around how those decisions might be perceived by others or, you know, upsetting someone or something else, it never is. I, I just think about children and I think, what is the best for this child? What are the best, what is the best for this group of children? And we talk about that as a team. And very often, um, you know, my team build upon my ideas. And, and again, that exemplifies the kind of leader that I am. I don't um, dictate what happens. I am an ideas person. And I'll, I'll often come in and say, I've been thinking and everybody kind of holds onto their hats because they go know what's coming next but when I when I've been thinking it's normally because um something sparked an idea in my head and I, I think this could be really good for our school or the staff or the parents or the community and then between my team and I we come up with a brilliant plan to execute that idea so it, whenever we're doing things it's never ever just something that's born from my imagination it's always that's at the root of it, then my fantastic team build on it. So I think being a team player for me is absolutely key. And I guess finally championing underdogs and those people that, you know, parents, staff and children who perhaps haven't had an advocate before in their lives. I'm quite passionate about doing that. And that's, that can involve some challenging conversations about people wanting to help themselves um, and, and therefore being open to accepting help from others and therefore enhancing the lives of everyone that I come across, really. I think if you can go through life doing that, that you know, doing no harm, obviously is the Hippocratic Oath, I think, but I think trying to do good takes it one step further. And I think it's possible in our profession to do that on a daily basis. Yeah, thank you so much. I just find it so heartwarming. It's like you're speaking to my heart. <laughs> this lights me up because um, you know, if everyone could adopt that leadership, the, the values that you've just talked about there, we could have a very different system, a very different one. We could, I mean, don't get me wrong, that there'll be people who, who are, are like you and I who agree with it, and there'll be people who don't and think it's soft or weak, or I don't, I don't think I'm a weak leader. I don't make rapid decisions about things, which can sometimes frustrate um, sort of higher entities than me. But what I make are authentic ones and um, ones that really do make a difference to our school. And 
And I think over time, what happens is that people see that and they buy into that much more readily because they know there won't be any quick, because really there aren't any quick fixes. Mm -hmm. It's like losing weight or, you know, making another significant life change. It's not as easy as, um, you know, a very quick solution, taking a pill or, or drinking a shake. There's something about commitment to the way that you want to live. And that's kind of how I feel about leadership. <clears throat> so I'm committed to how I want to lead my school, not just to pass an Ofsted inspection or for, for the children to do well in SAT, but because I think it needs longevity. It needs somebody looking at the long game and about um, the community where we, where we base ourselves, really. So not everybody will like what I've just said, but... <laughs> well, you know, that, that's up to them and everyone's um, yeah. entitled to their own, own way. But um, it's working for you, and, and and I'm you know saying this to you genuinely. It, it's inspiring. It's really inspiring. So thank you so much. Thank you for. And I knew that's why we wanted to have you on to be able to share <laughs> your authenticity because that's something that really does strike me about you. So thank you so much. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about. Well, ask you to talk more about the pandemic. Um, and a question that I'm going to start with here is if you could have decided how schools were going to open and how children would return and staff would return in September without government instructions in place, then what would you have done? Well, the, the whole pandemic issue, if I'm honest, has, has been quite a challenge for me cognitively because um, I don't watch much TV ever. And I, I very rarely um, involve myself with the media or the news and so on because I find it can be uh, quite destructive really. Often there's, there's a lot of kind of manipulation that goes on and I just, I don't get involved in it, I don't interact. So when it all kind of came about the start of the year, to say that I was behind the curve is probably an understatement because I just assumed um, that it wouldn't come to us, it wouldn't happen to us. I assumed that our government would have a plan in place, that there would be something that would make sure that in a first world country, we could still run. And I was completely shocked when one weekend I did watch something in February and um, I realized that it was, it, it was actually coming here, that we had missed the opportunity to, to tackle it. And from that point on, we then became very, very proactive so I got my team immediately in and we talked about what we would do in the event of school closure. And again, um, you know, having studied politics at, at sort of doctoral level, um, I kind of realized that there'd be a huge uh, sort of political play going on in the background. So I knew that schools would not close. I knew that we were essential to remain open for the economy and so on. So that kind of journey informed the rest of our year and, and would inform me in response to that question. So I know that schools have got to stay open. I know that. Um, the interesting thing from what you said earlier about the TED talk you watched is um, that that teacher thinks that suddenly teachers had to, I haven't watched it so I could be wrong paraphrasing, but the impression I got was that she felt suddenly teachers had to um, do food runs or be more than just a teacher. I, I think that has always been the case, but I think what the pandemic did before the summer is highlighted the extent to which we go the extra mile. I often come home sad and sorrowful and losing sleep over the plight of children um, because there is, you know, only so much we can do in our capacity. And I think that children come into school hungry and cold and malnourished and, you know, underloved. <laughs> 
uh, and with very poor um, standards of care for one reason and another is something that teachers and the teaching community has long been aware of and long done things about we've all taken in things from our own homes and invested our own money into the families with whom we work but i think what that did before the summer was kind of raise that in the public eye and there was a small window of time where people thought that um, educators were on a par almost with the nhs because we were doing a really um an essential role in, in making sure that the rest of the country could, could keep working. Unfortunately, the government allowed that um, little change in the media where then we became the focus of, of an awful lot of, of anger because obviously when people are angry and their lives are turned upside down, they then have to find a place for that to go. And it was directed towards schools and our unions were saying, we want to know these facts that you say that there are, these scientific facts, we need to know them so we can keep everyone safe. It's not good enough that you're telling us to open our doors because you're, we're not doing it based on knowledge or information. And in no other sector would people be expected to make huge decisions that could impact on lives without that knowledge to hand. Mm. So once we started to investigate um, the sort of science behind it and the lack of science and the conflicting ideas between the different sage groups, we then realised that what we needed, obviously, was, was the maintenance of good hand hygiene. And, and, you know, but that is something that schools, again, always advocate. You know, children don't necessarily get taught good hygiene at home. So that is something that we instill in children, as you know, from a very young age, what hand washing and not touching one another is a safeguarding thing, um, being respectful of people's personal space. So those sorts of things really were just we were able to build upon them. So in answer to your question, a quick answer now, I would have given the information we had before the summer, I would have just um, had everybody in as normal but wearing masks all the time um, but based on the advice at the time masks were irrelevant they didn't stop anything they didn't work they, they used they were in fact i think at one point it was posited that masks could increase the transmission rate because people weren't familiar with how to use them um, so I don't know what's happened in terms of the government knowledge and understanding of this virus, but it seems that there's been a complete U-turn on that now. All adults in schools now are expected to wear masks in, you know, in places where they can't distance and so on and so forth. So I think if I'd have brought everybody back in September, it would have been wearing masks um, all the time from, from that point. And obviously maintaining all the things that we know, the hand hygiene and the, the coughing into your arm and so on. And definitely, um, I would have made sure that we had an, uh, a really uh, authentic and effective test and trace system in place, which is what we were all promised at the very start. I think investing public money into um, what on the surface looks like sham companies, billions of pounds, by the way, um, to get nothing in return is really what has um, hindered schools doing what they need to do uh, and businesses as well. But that, that's just my view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I, I do know that it's a view that's shared amongst other head teachers and school leaders as well. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your views there, which are, are, are very well received. So how are you managing COVID within your school? Run us through a day in the life of being a head teacher in your school. <laughs> uh, OK, so um, uh, I set my alarm for 5 a.m. And I check the um, we've set up a specific COVID email because obviously we're in a big school. There are nearly six, 600 children in, in my primary school and nearly 100 staff. 
um, of various um, categories. So we set up a specific email address that is rooted into my email, um, which is to do with COVID. So anybody who's had a test or waiting or, you know, etc., that will come straight to me. So I start the morning off at five, I check my emails. Um, and then if there are things to sort of do in response to that, then they're all sort of boxed off by about 5.30. If I can, and I've got the energy, I try and do some exercise. I really try and get those endorphins going in the morning to give myself that positive mental attitude, ready to sort of tackle the day. Um, in between sort of preparing breakfast for my children and um, sort of preparing myself ready for the day, I will respond to the group WhatsApp chat, the SLT WhatsApp chat, which is normally starting to get busy from about 6.30 onwards, because obviously the normal day-to-day -day, um, staff absence things start to kick in, somebody who might have been injured or a child's ill or a grandparent or so, so on. Uh, and then the gate is the first thing that we do. So we've got these staggered starts and ends of the day, which takes my deputy and I and my two pastoral leads, my Senkoma pastoral lead, um, from about 8.25 all the way through to about 10 past nine. So we're out on the gates, we're making sure people are, are safe on the road because we've got so many children. Um, it can be quite challenging. There's queues of people everywhere and it's making sure that everyone is safe because where we live, where we where, where our school is, serves about four different schools, high schools, special schools and primary schools. And um, the road where our school is, is also um, used by lots of teenagers going to and from two different schools. So they cross over. It's quite, it can be quite chaotic because also there are people who live there who are getting in and out in cars. So we're almost police, uh, traffic enforcers, um, bouncers of, of various kinds. And at that point, obviously people will give us complaints or sometimes some really nice feedback about they think that we're doing a great job. We get to smile and laugh and chat to the children because that now is limited, our interaction with children, we can't cross bubbles and so on. So at that point in the morning is actually um, like a kaleidoscope of things go on really. So then the rest of my morning might be spent following up on complaints from parents so and also local residents about traffic and so on. So parent complaints around isolation guidance, government guidance, um, emails that I've sent out around things like um, please don't put inappropriate messages on the Google Classroom. That's You wouldn't do that in a normal classroom. We're treating this as a classroom, so please don't do that. Um, so the, so the sort of imperative emails where you're giving direction. I've had complaints about that. Um, children's behaviour, so still managing that, that to and from school, year six behaviour where there's lots of boys, you know, playing around at the road, just normal stuff. Online learning, lack of online learning, too much online learning. Um, uh, then I look at staff well-being. We've got a couple of people who are dealing with some tricky issues and I like to check in with them. You know, they've got parents who are suffering from quite serious illnesses or they've been bereaved or what have you um staff absence so testing uh symptomatic isolating looking after their children so we've not had a full complement of staff you get the government daily information email which is just really long um, and then you have to fill in a form which has increased in size and complexity in the last couple of weeks the local authorities send us a very similar email repeating all of that information and asking us to fill in forms around special um, groups of children so those who might be at risk or so on and then on top of all of that um, any children that become symptomatic during the day have to be isolated or a two-site school on, on two sides of the road 
um, obviously you were expecting an Ofsted visit. My school when I took it over was in RI. Um, so no doubt we'll be one of the schools that get an Ofsted visit. So it's making sure we've got everything prepared for that. Um, risk assessments around COVID, um, they change as the daily information changes because you have to update them and make sure that they're still fit for purpose. Um, planning for SATs and, and statutory testing because obviously that's due to start with phonics very shortly. Um, planning for online learning. So that's something um, we've had to take our uh, staff through and our children and the parents because again I don't like to just do this whole this is what we're doing and then everybody's panicking and you spend most of your time dealing with problems. So I've taken everybody through it in a systematic way so that everyone is now using it. For example this week we've had two and tonight will be the third parents evening on Google Classrooms which you know is new and I'm sure other people are probably doing it much better than us for months but it's new to everybody and um, everyone's taken to it really really well we record the sessions for safety we've made all the expectations explicit and we haven't had any problems and we've only had positive feedback and I think that's because of the planning that went in before uh, so then that comes to sort of going to the loo <laughs> so we have to queue for the loo in school because obviously you have to isolate the loos and um, there's lots of us. Um, so we queue for the loo, uh, we wear masks all over the place now. And then your ongoing projects really educating children, they can't be sort of left to the wayside. So although Ofsted will be inspecting them in any case, uh, you know, this whole curriculum, curriculum, curriculum thing that we were really excited to plan last year. We really want to do that. So it's about how we carry that on, whether we're in um, a bubble lockdown or, you know, some children are at home or what have you. So we've planned for everything. And on top of all of that, we've got safeguarding issues that still relentlessly come in, assessing special needs children, receiving children from other schools with needs that haven't been met then assessing them and trying to get that ball rolling um behavior issues in school just day to day coaching my new senior leadership um looking at the budget doing the governor's meetings that kind of thing and that is really every single day there'll be any number of those things in a day some days more than others one or the other but really that's oh and then the gate at the end of the day happens the same in reverse um come rain or shine and then it's following up with staff afterwards they've done all performance management and supporting that um so far and just checking in with everybody the newly qualified teachers making sure they're okay um following up with parental complaints in the evening and then catching up with the senior leaders who are across the whole school in the evening so work probably finishes uh, it can depend anywhere. Oh, and governor's meetings in the evening as well. So anything from nine to about half past ten at night and in between times is meals to cook and your house to run and your own children to see and so on. So that's a life in the day of. A life, a whole life in the day of a head teacher. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. That What you just described, that's a, a normal day. So how has your workload been exacerbated by this pandemic? Well, we sat, I certainly wasn't uh, doing a daily return to the government or the local authority or updating risk assessments on a daily basis or isolating children or the hour in the morning and the hour in the evening. We'd stand on the gate, but all the children just walked past us at quarter to nine. Yeah. That was it. Day started. It wasn't sort of marshalling and telling one bubble to wait and dealing with cross parents and that kind of thing. Um, you know, timing was tight before this happened, but this has just pushed it to a new level. There is no, no downtime, but there can't be, you can't afford for there to be downtime because um, 
you know, at any moment you have to be, I mean, the expectation actually was that schools should be 24 hours um, available for, for notification of people who get a positive COVID test. Well, I can't ask my staff to do that. Um, I want them to be teaching children. So there is only really um, a handful of us who can take on that responsibility. And again, I, you know, I'm conscious of everyone else's well-being. So really that has to fall to me, which is why it's rooted to my email address. Yeah, that's just <laughs> sounds so, so exhausting and unsustainable. Yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I can only, again, repeat what I've said. I can only appreciate how difficult the circumstances are. Um, and, you know, I'm just going to stop and take a pause and say thank you, Victoria. <laughs> thank you so, for whatever my mere, you know, um, humble thank you is worth to you. I do thank you um, because that is not easy. Not easy. Well, it's kind of easy to say so because, to be honest, I won't be on my own. I know I'm not alone. You know, I... I network with a lot of head teachers and, and teaching professionals on Twitter and I know that this is this is a common uh, feeling and particularly at the end of term everyone's normally tired because we yes. did this in 110% but um, this year more so than ever um, you know it, it's not ideal um, yes yeah Absolutely. And, and yes, what you've said there is, is definitely been echoed in, in the head teachers that I've been speaking to. You're, you're not alone. I know that's, um, you know, it's reassuring to some degree, but it's still you that's running your school on a daily basis. So although you do have an a, alliance of other head teachers that are going through different but similar experiences, it's still the weight of the world on your shoulders right now. So we, we do, we do really respect what you're doing and, and thank you. I would say that, um, I've said it often and the team know it's not just hot air but the, what makes my job bearable and, and much easier to do and more manageable is the fact that I've got an extremely good um, senior leadership team and yeah. I, that is because well firstly the size of my school means that I do have a, a, a more people to choose from and to, to fall on I can only feel for my colleagues who are working in much smaller schools because then everything will be for them to do Whereas I have a pastoral team who kind of oversee safeguarding and oversee um, special needs and stuff like that. You know, there are some head teachers who will be doing both of those things for themselves, as well as all the things that I know I do. And um, for them, I think it must be borderline unbearable. And, and, and they're the people who I would, um, you know, hope that their families appreciate that and I'm sure they do because as with everything there are positive stories that come through where people are very thankful and then there are the odd um you know group person who isn't just, just doesn't see it for some reason so so yeah I am very very lucky in my school with my team because I also think that you know the training that they received before this and the way that we've worked before this means that um they're, they're more than capable of doing everything that we need to happen so it's kind of a two-pronged thing it's the fact that we've got a large school and a number of people but the fact that they are extremely well trained beforehand um which means, means that it's all gone as well as it possibly could so far i think yes yeah that that's really good to hear and and absolutely it's like the head teacher that that's an architect you know you've been building this team and you've been working in this way which is what's given those sound foundations for for what's you know what challenges you're bearing really now so really pleased to hear that you have the support of, of a great team that 
uh, no doubt you will have worked with and, and coached and impacted upon beforehand. So at this point, I'm going to ask you really just to talk to us about, you've touched on the, you know, checking in on your staff around their well-being and mental health. I am very concerned about, you know, the well-being, mental health of our colleagues in the profession right now, especially head teachers. But what is the what has been the impact of the pandemic upon the well-being and mental health of your staff and what's been the most stressful aspect for them? Uh, well, from from when we uh, closed our school to the majority of pupils, I think I made it really evident to the staff that they didn't need to feel guilty because there is a sense of inherent guilt, I think, for people who work in the education profession. And that goes across the board. I don't just mean teachers here. I mean, everybody who certainly works in my school, and I'm sure this is mirrored across the board, um, I felt terribly guilty if they weren't in school. So I had to just reassure them and say, there is nothing we can do about this. You know, there is a pandemic. You are not able to work in school. There is nothing we can do. As long as you're prepared to come in on a rotor basis with the key worker children, that is all I can ask you to do because there are only some jobs that can be done from home when you're a class teacher. It's different, I think, for the leadership team, slightly. There are things, paperwork things that we can be getting along with at home, which obviously we all did. But um, I think removing any kind of um, unnecessary guilt, really, and just reassuring them that there's no judgment made if they haven't, you know, they're doing what they can do at home. And part of that is staying at home and not, um, being part of this transference of, of, of the virus. So if you're staying at home, then you're doing what needs to be done. Thank you very much. And then after that, just when people have stepped up and um, when we've needed them to involve themselves in certain things, they've done it. And it's been completely um, you know, unequivocal. There's been no grumbling. It's just been absolutely we'll do it because they had that period of time where they couldn't work. They did work, but it wasn't the same kind of work. So they were phoning parents up and checking in on children and, and you know, doing setting work and preparing for this year and so on and so forth. But because they weren't in school, again, some people in the press thought it was OK to sort of lambast everyone in the profession by saying that we're lazy and that we weren't doing our jobs and so on. There were people on furlough who were being paid literally to do nothing because they couldn't do anything. And in the same way that I don't judge them, because what else could they do? I don't judge people in education who couldn't go to work in, in a school for that day. But everybody worked in as much as they could, which has meant that the start of this year has, again, gone as smoothly as it possibly could, because everyone's put in the groundwork in that couple of months before the summer. So in terms of their mental health, I would say... Um, managing expectations is the key thing that I can do as the head so not sort of panicking everybody on the on the first day in September and saying right we've got a month let's get cracking with online learning no I explained to them how it would all work and the time frame and when a little bit of pressure was exerted upon me by external agencies I stood my ground and said no we will do this in a sensible time frame we will be pragmatic and we will be thorough and we will be empathetic to every member of our community we will do it based on evidence and that is how we work and part of that is being a head teacher and being a leader is to kind of bat that kind of pressure off so the staff are protected from it also the anxiety around Ofsted so the anxieties in my school are perhaps again mirrored so number one it's making sure all staff were up to speed on the online learning 
and all the parents. So that was planned very, very carefully by me and has been um, perfectly well executed and everyone's happy. Number two is Ofsted, uh, the expectations around that. And that is a lot of the brain work that I have done uh, at home and the pulling together information and the making sure that we've got answers to things that they might ask us and so on and really clear rationales for everything. But that's how I work anyway. So again, reassuring staff that they don't need to worry if Ofsted come. In fact, we should probably expect them to come and carry on regardless as we do anyway. So I think them seeing that I'm calm about that has helped allay some of their fears. Mm. Um, the fear of our sort of RI status, um, you know, the scrutiny that we may be under because again on Twitter we've heard of other teachers who are in schools where their leadership teams their local authorities have been in have been very very challenging at a time like this doing lesson walks and lesson interventions and lesson observations and whatever the, the lingo is around that whole thing now basically being really intimidating and that is not what teachers need at the moment it's not it's not what children need and I've also told the parents um, what's happening. I think good communication, clear communication with the parents means that parents then don't exert that pressure on teachers and on teaching staff. So my staff know, all of them, that I, I, uh, I am pragmatic and sensible and I don't put pressure on them. However, we do have high expectations and I think that means that working with children, there's no kind of loosening of standards or slacking off you know if we're in we're fully working with children if they're at home they need that support and so I think that, that the staff know that they've been supported and I think the final um, anxiety really is around them catching the virus because obviously it does kill people I know all the statistics about age demographic and so on however the reality is it kills people nobody really knows enough about it yet to say who when why how or what so there is that level of anxiety i have had the virus and i was ill in bed for about five weeks my admin assistant also had it um and we were terribly ill and I, i'm never ill i'm one of the most robust people physically robust people that i know so for me to be so poorly with it it was quite disturbing i think for a lot of people um so i think that there is that fear around catching it um and just trying to make sure therefore that everyone is as safe as possible means that they know we've done everything we can absolutely everything that we can to mitigate for all of these kind of threats if you like external threats to our school community we've, we've done all we can to mitigate but i think the final thing then is um being paid if their child is at home because of a bubble closure in their child's school then there is no current national recognized uh, rationale around payment or not payment and when you consider that some schools have closed bubbles seven or eight times in the last seven or eight weeks um, this could be a member of staff who's in and out of school every five minutes and therefore the anxiety around being able to pay your mortgage or your rent um, suddenly becomes quite extreme now we've obviously found a way to try to manage that but that will definitely not be a national thing because I've been in contact with the unions and with our local authority and so on and nobody at HR has got an answer for that so I think for a lot of people it could be quite stressful and, and if this continues it's it's not going to get any easier what an important point there you've just made that I, I haven't heard any other head teacher so far that I've spoken to raise but 
Oh, thanks so much for raising that and bringing that to attention. And um, I hope that, you know, listeners, you know, can contact you, Victoria, if that's, you know, if you'd be happy to discuss if any head teachers listening today want to find a solution, um, that would that be okay? Well, that you, you, I'm sure you'll share my um, my Twitter and my LinkedIn handle. So, uh, yeah, so. yeah, we'll do. I'll tag you in when, when we share the post. So, thank you because I think that could be um, absolutely critical in terms of well-being. Because you're absolutely right, financial well-being plays a huge part. Um, and you made that point earlier around the guilt that we feel. So, there, it's all combined, isn't it? It's just it's complex. It's it's very complex. Thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, some really important aspects there around the well-being and mental health of your staff. Um, so the next point is, in, in equal measures, you know, have, what have you noticed around the impact of, upon the students on their mental health? You know what? Um, they are delighted to be back in school. They're absolutely delighted, bar none. We've had one or two children who naturally in early years would have been um, probably quite sad to leave mums and dads. That kind of separation anxiety is perfectly normal in September and October time, as I'm sure you know. Um, other than that, though, to be honest, I think children were fed up. They want to do back with their friends. So mental health wise, I think they're just delighted to be back. Um, yes, there are changes, but, you know, this is no surprise to most normal people. Children are very, very adaptable. And once they have the routines established and explained to them, and everyone is very calm and all the adults are very calm around them because they're being nurtured as well, everybody gets on with it. And it is lovely to see them all um, just chatting and laughing. And yeah, I, I would say minimal impact on mental health in being back to school. Mm -hmm. How it was for them at home, that is probably something for uh, an intrepid researcher to do over the coming years to, to sort of investigate that. But uh, we certainly kept in touch with all of our children by phone call each week, which I know they enjoyed. Um, and some of our more vulnerable families, we called them, you know, much more regularly than, one, than once a week. But yeah, I, I don't know how they, they fared at home, but certainly since being back, they're all absolutely fine. Yeah, good. Okay, that's really good to hear. <laughs> That's great. It, it, is, it is lovely. And, and many, many head teachers that I've spoken to have explained the same, that they've been delighted to be back, the children. But as you rightly say, some of those underlying issues, you know, may come out at a future point. But yes, um, for now, that's good news. That's good news. I think they thrive on routine. They just love yeah. schools are great places to establish routines. And Routines change anyway, year on year. So come September, children moving up a year, you know, they kind of expect us something a little different anyway. New teacher, perhaps, new classroom, new expectations. Um, so actually, it was all very, very um, measured and, and taken in our stride, really. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The, the boundaries, they, they like to know their boundaries. That's not to say we didn't plan ahead. We trained our pastoral team. The whole school had attachment training before the summer and how that could have, uh, you know, over two twilights before that, to just kind of inform how that might affect children coming back. Um, we also did a few uh, online training sessions around um, mental health and sort of counselling sessions with our uh, pastoral team. And we have um, Elsa anyway. We've got four trained Elsas in our school, emotional literacy support and assistance in our school. So they already they already talk to children anyway. I say talk to, you know, they, spe they specifically talk to children who've got needs um, anyway. So identifying anybody who had struggled or who didn't want to come in on the first day, 
we did that with parents beforehand and those children were immediately on a program with, with those pastoral uh, leads but also um making sure the staff had access to that as well was important before we came because as i've just said dysregulated adults do not provide you know lovely harmonious environments for children so making sure the adults are safe and healthy and well was key to get the children in and, and you know in a lovely calm environment so we've got we've got the um employee assistance program mm -hmm. and i also brought in um somebody to do some uh it's called inner armor to do some training around that resilience around with staff as well uh so it's making again it's it's preparation i think so in preparing that um, it enabled us to make sure that everything went smoothly but also what i would say is the children who've come back and presented and it's only one or two with issues are children that we had identified way before um, lockdown took place and we were already assessing for additional needs so those children have come back and their needs haven't escalated they've remained the same but here they are and they're now needing to be sort of followed up on and i think it's important for us not to cloud children's actual needs by sort of putting a sticking plaster on of oh it's only the after effects of covid and lockdown those children were already being um supported before lockdown mm -hmm. and their needs haven't changed they're, they're just now you know um uh, continuing to be supported through that um, special needs process yeah absolutely absolutely and nurturing environments as you describe will have planned for that as you as you know so that's good to hear and you've got some great systems there great some support measures that um, will be benefiting your school community so um victoria we've talked about your staff we've talked about your children i'd really like to know about you how are you coping <laughs> um well anybody who has read my twitter feed will know or my linkedin will know that there are days when i do share that uh you know i've shed a tear or two i'm not afraid to say that because i think it's a pressure release really because under a highly pressurized environment uh, much as people might think it isn't and it's lovely and, and you know it's kind of like i'm miss honey from matilda uh, i am miss honey from matilda but i'm afraid i'm up against it at times and shedding a tear to me is the most natural form of just letting it all go so what's my mental health like i don't sleep well at all um i've con i'm constantly worried about every layer of just what i've talked to you about there of you know staff whose parents are dying and i've got children who've you know are really struggling um and, and you know trying to get the local authority in to make sure they're supported and supporting parents who are struggling with children's needs and my family not seeing my family and my son's just left home and not marking those um, key moments in, in your child's life uh, make a human being sad, I think, a good parent, an involved and invested parent quite sad. So there's sort of personal things that I know have affected me and also obviously professional things, but I'm lucky, as I say, I'm very, very lucky in that I have my own routine. So I think we all thrive with routine and it sets us up to, if we need that little crutch, we've got it in, in the form of our routine. So I set my alarm, I try to exercise, I try to eat healthily as much as I possibly can. It's not always easy during the day. Time can run out um, in terms of, you know, getting lunch or what have you. But I try and exercise, I try and tell people if I'm feeling, if I'm struggling. So I've got my senior leadership team and only today I sent them a message to say, I'm struggling today, I'm crying because I'm worried about this child. 
and, and it feels pants and, and their response is simple you're crying because you care it's normal um go for a walk you'll feel better you know you will and they're right and i do but i'm still trying to work on behalf of this particular child who's causing me worry this week and i think you know i'm honest on social media for the reason that um the idea that head teachers or leaders in our world are sort of coated with Teflon and everything slides off them, it is so outdated. None of us are hero leaders, none, not one. There are some great leaders out there who I admire and, and there are some people who um, plug away every day that go unnoticed. And I think it, I don't do my job to kind of present myself as being a hero leader. I do my job to say, I love it, I do love it. It's a great job. Um, it, there are times when it's fantastic and I celebrate all of that and there are times when it's really hard and I also share that so that people know that I'm not some superstar I don't don't want them to think on oh my word we could never aspire to this wonderfulness it's just no actually we just work really hard at doing this and the hard work sometimes comes with the tears as well and, and the struggle and the grind and, and the difficult conversations and all of that stuff but the balance is what is important I think and, and, and having that balance and my team are great Having a team is brilliant, which is why I tweeted the other day, if you're in a small school and you are feeling the stress that I feel now and you don't have a team or you don't feel supported, just send me a message on Twitter. I will be your team because sometimes all it takes is an ear to just say, and this and this and this. And I'll say, I absolutely hear you. I know. And just being heard and that kind of containment idea, uh, you know, it's an emotional idea of containment, but just knowing that someone is listening to you and that they understand can be all the difference. And several people have contacted me and hopefully I, that has been beneficial to them. But uh, yeah, being authentic and sharing it and getting it out of your system and not carrying it around with you and trying to be all things to all people and hiding behind this mask of perfection, I think helps me because I, I know I'm not perfect and I'm not afraid to show that human side of myself. Um, so yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> Exercise. <laughs> I, I was just, I'm hanging on to every word you're saying and you really are Miss Honey, aren't you? You really are. <laughs> it's just so refreshing to hear you speak with such honesty and the words that you use at the beginning in terms of your values as a leader was honesty and integrity and being ethical. And I know that the listeners will be, you know, seeing those characteristics shine in this conversation that really come through because that's certainly what I'm hearing and just keeping it real. And I know that that was what got me really interested in your posts um, because you do keep it real, you know, it, life is full of ebbs and flow and, and you share that and, and thank you so much for that honesty and I know that listeners, particularly head teachers, will take a lot of, you know, that will be really cathartic to, to hear right now. And I have to, I would really like to mention this because um, Steve Waters and I, we work together on a number of projects and this common feature, which I'd like to just take the, an opportunity to share with the listeners, there seems to be this common feature in which head teachers like yourself that have this um, relationship with their teams in where there is absolute lack of sort of hierarchy and just this connection that we are a team but you really role model that in every sense of the word of which exudes a role model and, and not being afraid to say I'm struggling 
And I just find that so inspiring. And actually, to me, from the amount of head teachers I speak to, if anyone's listening and they don't, they don't, they're trying to work out what they're not doing that isn't right, I would like to say, just try that. Because we are seeing this common theme occur that head teachers like yourself that are saying, I'm human like you, I'm not perfect. I don't say I've got all the answers, but we're in it together are the ones that are finding more success in general terms. But right now with this pandemic, certainly that characteristic and that value of leadership seems to be what is supporting these leaders right now. And I, and I wanted to take the opportunity to say that because I feel like I've been listening to heads over the coming weeks. And I want to say there is, a there is a bit of a formula here, guys. You've just got to be real. Thank you. You're welcome. I mean, I think in terms of hierarchy, um, in the last two schools I've worked in, um, I've been, I, I've had a, a hoodie. So we've had hoodies, you know, for winter or what have you. And they laugh, they make sure I put the boss on the hoodie and it literally has the boss, not my name, but the boss, because I don't look like the head teacher most of the time. And so if you were to walk in and try and work out which one of me was it, uh, then it wouldn't be me that you would pick ordinarily as the head. So I have to have this like little badge sewn onto my hoodie that says the boss. <laughs> I love that. And I know that's true because I saw one of your posts very soon after uh, the term started and you were trimming a hedge, weren't you? <laughs> and I just thought, brilliant. That's awesome. needed to happen. And uh, yeah, I got shouted out for that because it wasn't health and safety. But I don't know. I'm quite practical and I thought I want the hedge trimming. The guys are busy doing COVID stuff. I'm going to go out. I'm going to bring my hedge trimmers in from home. The hedge is being trimmed until I was told I wasn't allowed and someone else has sensibly taken over the hedge trimming. And then I was also told off the other day our senior caretaker was uh, off on a split shift and I thought I'd seize the opportunity to get the junior one with the ladders and to climb up and start fixing the um, the little thing that we're making in school, the special secret project that we're making in school. And uh, I was told off for that as well, because that's not health and safety. But um... <laughs> it, might, it might not be health and safety, but you know, the, the phrase that comes to my mind is servant leadership. Yeah, yeah. I, guess that, I guess that is important. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Anytime hierarchy comes in, really, I think, is uh, when the book stops. So if there's any kind of hassle, I deal with that. And then everything else, everyone else deals with so that they get all the good, they get taught how to deal with the bad, obviously, alongside me, and they get coached through that. And that's important. But in the main, if there's, if there's nonsense to be dealt with or anything from outside, that gets done by by the boss. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That, uh, and yeah, again, real, really, um, you know, full of integrity, that response. So thank you. Um, Victoria, sort of last couple of questions last points that I'd like you to make is um, you know if you had a message for the decision makers the politicians what would you say to them uh, if I could say in capital letters bold and underlined I would and it would be uh, three words <clears throat> get a grip I would say ditch Ofsted what nonsense is it ditch yeah. all the tests this year focus that money on children's learning invest it in schools give them all the extra teachers that they need in order to make sure that children are in as smaller groups as possible learning as well as possible why would you focus on testing children 
who have not been in actual school for months and months. I have got no idea where the logic and the integrity is of that stance, none whatsoever. And as for Ofsted, you know, they are just like you or I doing a job and being paid to do it. It's not their fault. The fault lies in the decision makers and the politicians who cannot see how futile it is to inspect schools in the current climate. I would say literally get a grip. Their punitive, reductive, performative model is so archaic and so not fit for purpose anyway. But in a pandemic, it should just be abandoned wholesale, just completely abandoned in favour of a much more holistic and modern approach, which is based on um, you know, mental health and collaboration and, and, you know, everybody working completely together. This idea that we would continue to have schools competing against one another in the best offsteads and so on in a time like this is almost kind of sick, really. It's pathological and it comes from where? It's certainly not coming from a place where children matter, where them or their mental health matter. We did um, a parent questionnaire in the very early part of the term because I'm obviously part of a campaign that wants to scrap sats and everything else because it's just a nonsense. So I asked our parents and overwhelmingly the majority said, no, absolutely not. We should be focusing on getting the children in and teaching them, not testing them on what they don't know. Let's, let's teach them. Let's make learning you know, wonderful when they are in school. With all the schools at the moment struggling with bubble closures and school closures and two-week lockdowns and all this nonsense, quite why anybody would perpetuate the cycle of, of inspections is literally beyond me. I have no idea. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Get a grip in capitals and bold and underlined. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and just said to absolute perfection, I, I can't, I wouldn't dare add anything to that. I'll just let the listeners take that in because I'm sure that they will echo what you've just said there. So I, I think you've answered this already. <laughs> just said, but if you had a magic wand and you could ask for anything that would support you right now and your colleagues through this pandemic, what, what would you say? What would you need to be supported and feel supported? I think the first thing is the media also needs to be told by government to get a grip. We are doing our very best. Every school in the land has done their best since lockdown took place. Um, you know, so the media need to be told in no uncertain terms that in order to sell papers, they do not need to absolutely decimate our profession. Um, secondly, that we need funding. Schools need funding. Or again, the pittance that they've given us, it might equate to millions in their books and it's a good soundbite in the press. But actually how it looks is £80 per pupil. That's it. So that's a reality that's quite stark. Um, so we need funding and actually I would sooner funding gets spent on schools than on SATs because SATs cost hundreds of thousands if not millions of pounds a year to administer. Offset costs millions of pounds a year so let's spend that money on actual learning, let's fund schools properly and let's remove structures that are archaic and unnecessary like Ofsted and SATs and lead tables and so therefore it's only three things I'm asking for really. Sort the media out and tell them to get a grip on themselves. Um, fund us properly and remove punitive things like Ofsted and SATs because they're not, not needed. Three. The power of three. <laughs> oh, three. That's wonderful. What a wonderful note to um, give us some food for thought and you know, I, I really certainly hope that um, there are some decision makers 
that do get to listen to your views and what you've shared. And let's hope and pray that um, everything that you've said there really does happen and we are able to support yourself and, and all the other colleagues leading schools right now. Victoria, thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts, your views, your feelings and your experiences of what you are dealing with right now. I know that the listeners will benefit from hearing this back and, you know, being able to relate because so much of your messages today will resonate. So thank you so much on behalf of the Every Teacher Matters Network podcast for having this candid conversation with me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I do hope you enjoyed listening to today's Every Teacher Matters conversation. It is our mission to be the voice of our amazing school staff. You can find out more by visiting everyteachermattersproject.com or contacting me directly at contact at Thanks for listening.